Happy New Year and welcome to episode 10 of Coffee and Circuses. Can't believe I've made it to 10 episodes. Only three more to go and I've surpassed 40 towers. Not quite sure if the podcast has had the same impact yet, but whatever, we all need our milestones. For the 10th episode, I'm joined by Christian Bass, who has worked in digital marketing for the History Press Publishers and English Heritage. In his time with the History Press, Chris won an award for a Twitter marketing campaign which recounted the voyage of the Titanic in real time, while more recently he was one of the brains behind English Heritage's 1066 Twitter stories, where the events of that year were told through various Twitter accounts belonging to the likes of William the Conqueror, his wife Matilda, Harold Godwinson, and an array of other characters. In this show, Chris talks about the 1066 campaign, making an animated video about Hadrian's Wall, how social media marketing has changed, why Facebook and Twitter have somewhat stagnated in that regard, and how he ended up in this role after studying ancient history at the University of Reading, where he also met a certain young, dashing archaeologist who now hosts a podcast and teaches at the University of Kent, just to clarify which archaeologist I'm talking about. (laughs) He also talks about his brush with David Attenborough and why Man United will finish above the Spurs this season. Say what you will about him, he definitely has a sense of humour. So, thanks for joining me, and now on to the show. I think uh, Sony in general are quite like isolated in terms of what they want people to do with their games and the kind of connectivity with it. Because w- was it like, Minecraft something recently, or it was a game in the past twelve months where Xbox uh, sort of said, "Hey, we're going to open this up so people can play it online with PC users, um, but PS4 users were like, "No, we can't. We're not going to let you do that." And there's a big uproar saying, "Sony, why you got why you got to be like that for Sony? Everyone else is letting us play with each other, but." They were like, no, no, our baby. No one else touches it. That's what they were like with Spider-Man for a long time. Look how that went for them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. A couple of awesome films, terrible film with Venom, but a pretty good game now. I haven't played it yet. I mean, I'll get around to it at some point, but that'll be after Red Dead. Mm. So, social media. That's, social media. That's your, that's your jam. That's what you do. It is. Um, so can you actually say, just say what your job title is now? So I'm, I'm a digital community... No, wait, sorry. I don't know what my job title is. I'm a digital communications officer, uh, and, and I work in policing. Um, so basically that just means I'm, I'm talking to key stakeholders on various social media platforms. I do a bit of website development, um, occasionally pick up you know, a bit of press duty here and there. Um, but it's, it's, it's similar to what I've been doing for the past eight years or so, but it just lets me uh, you know, deal with a whole, whole different environment where there's always things going on obviously the world of policing constant 24 7 world um so i I came into this thinking i want to get outside my comfort zone a bit but historically i've worked in heritage i've worked in publishing historically is (laughs) (laughs) um, historically i work for english heritage yeah uh worked for english heritage for about three years and and before that i had a small stint working for an accountancy body uh, which is much more interesting than it sounds and then before that, worked for a history publisher. Um, so yeah, bit of a background in that. Um, but I did three years at English Heritage. Right after they had formed as an independent charity, kind of independent from the government. So they, you know, basically for most of their uh, history, they they ran these sites in the country that you'll be familiar with, like Stonehenge, Dover Castle. I guess historically they were, they made just about enough money to continue to be open to the public. Uh, and then one day, 
uh, hey, it turns out that they're in a surplus, they're making money, they're actually making a profit. Uh, so the government said, well, you know, if that's the case, then why not just, you know, you guys be an independent charity uh, away from us. Um, and so that's happened. So English Heritage is a, is a charitable trust. Uh, the old English Heritage uh, is now called Historic England. And they deal with the things that, you know, like listed buildings. They, they advise the government on historical matters, the more sort of nitty gritty stuff. Whereas the new charity, English Heritage, looks after the places you would go for a day out. And I understand they've got that until like 2023. Um, they, they need to prove that they're completely self-sufficient by 2023 to continue. So I was brought on just after that kind of... Uh, there were a lot of people in the industry called it a divorce. Like, a, you know, they're, they're divorced from, from historic England. And so it was a time of a lot of change. And uh, the marketing department kind of really changed. It's sort of digital, especially. Uh, so I joined a social media team of four people within kind of um, working alongside our content marketing team and, and various other digital bodies in that. Um, so they had a really big, really sort of Herculean task of uh, trying to get this new organisation recognised on Twitter because they, they hadn't like Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts for years, but then those accounts... Uh, like historic England got those accounts in the divorce. Like, uh, and I, I think the <laughs> those thing, are the children they kept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the thinking was that because the new charity was retaining a name that people were familiar with, it would be easier for EH to start afresh. Whereas historic England, you know, just had the existing accounts to work with. Uh, and one of my biggest projects to take on uh, from the moment I started was to support the anniversary of 1066, so which was the 950th anniversary of Battle Hastings in 2016 and English Heritage are custodians of Battle Abbey uh, which is the abbey founded on battle the, the battlefield if you believe most archaeologists the battle where you know, the battle of Battle of Hastings took place they don't know what they're talking about they don't know what they're talking about no I mean it, was it like Time Team did like thing about five years ago where they said actually it's down the road from here it's actually on a roundabout right now um, which uh, eh, no let's just it's, it's on the abbey it's on the abbey um, so Every year they have this big reenactment. They get a uh, load of English and French reenactors who just look incredible. That they go out and, and buy or, or make rather uh, armor that Saxons would have worn, that Normans would have worn, and they learn how to choreograph fights and they just really go at each other hundreds at a time, um, reenacting the battle as accurately as one can without actually, you know, killing one another uh, in like half an hour as opposed to twelve hours, which is the battle of Hastings actually worth. So it looks great. So English Heritage had you know, this big anniversary to celebrate and I came into the role new, uh, newly created team and you know, I was tasked with supporting that on social media. And that in itself is actually quite easy because it's such a big anniversary and, and everyone in this country knows 1066 with the Battle of Hastings. You know, people are very much, even if you know nothing about history, chances are you'll know that one thing. That and when World War II started and ended, I guess like the two big days, right? Um, so the actual... People were always going to talk about that anniversary when it got close to it. And, you know, there was always going to be coverage and noise about it. I guess what was hard for me was trying to find a way to get that conversation started and to keep it going for months and months at a time. Because I think from English Heritage's perspective, it was, uh, it was a case that, OK, they got Battle Abbey. And people are going to go there to watch the reenactment. That's great. But the Normans Battle Hastings, that's just the start of the story. They went on to build castles up and down the country and, and, and have you know, a tremendous effect on the history of England. So uh, the understanding was there's six, six castles under English heritage uh, sort of 
we met in England, 66 castles. A lot of those are either Norman castles or they started as Norman castles. Why not use the whole celebrations as a way to celebrate the entire, the entirety of what the Normans left in England? And so they decided to, uh, you know, each month you would pick a certain castle to highlight and we would show people how to get around them and, and why they should visit them and stuff like that. And from my point of view, I thought, okay, well, we know that the events 1066 kickstarted in January the 5th, 1066, when Edward the Confessor uh, died. And then the next day, the Witten elects uh, Harold, Harold Govenson as the next King of England. And then William kicks off because he was allegedly promised the crown. And you know, there's, there's months and months of activity, which builds up to first the uh, Battle of Snapper Bridge and then the uh, Battle of Hastings. Um, so I thought, how do I tell this story over nine, ten months? And how do I keep people interested? And in that time, hopefully encourage them to visit other Norman sites in the country, not just Battle Abbey in October. Um, and so to do this, I created eight Twitter accounts. This is where the social media comes into it. You did ask me that about half an hour ago. I'm just, I'm, I'm coming we'll get out to talk about the Romans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> we will, yeah. Um, so uh, when I've been working at the History Press, I had created um, my first sort of big project within the sort of social media world, this uh, real-time Twitter account for the thinking of the Titanic. And that was done over a month and we had this account and we just tweeted things that would have happened day to day in Titanic's life from the moment she left Belfast until she sunk. That went down really well, got a lot of worldwide coverage. Yeah, <laughs> I'm full of puns today. Um, went down really well and I thought, okay, I want to do the same thing for 1066 characters, but I, I can't just have the one account. So you thought you'd use your Titanic... Um marketing scheme to break the ice with English heritage oh so god you're so full sorry carry on so full um so I thought okay that's a good idea but I can't just do I can't just have the one account um so I made an account for Howard obviously and one for William thinking okay these two chaps have two very conflicting views on who should be on the throne they've got different opinions of what Edward said to them and all these really great stories and they can sort of argue and bicker with one another so I'll be in charge of both accounts, but they can yell at each other, they, they can retort, they can use the whole year to try and drum up support, are you Team Norman, are you Team Saxon, who do you think has the best claim to the throne? So that's great, but what other stories are there? Well, uh, there are some great uh, female characters in the 1066 story, some really powerful, poignant characters like Matilda, who was William's wife. She was pretty, I mean, as challenging as William must have been as a person to deal with, I mean, one story has it, and this is terribly outdated of a story but it was kind of celebrated after it came out that William wanted to marry Matilda um, her father wouldn't let it because he was a bastard so basically when she was out one day riding uh, on, with a friend he just went up to her asked her to marry him she said no and he pulled off a horse and then she went oh that's really cool actually you know that's that's really impressive that's I'm gonna marry you now obviously terrible terrible story but it gives you an idea of how much of a awkward horrible person William perhaps could be Matilda, by all accounts, was actually quite strong and independent and she could stand up to William. And actually, when he left France, uh, well, or rather Normandy, to invade England, he left Matilda in charge of Normandy. Uh, so I thought, again, that's a good story to tell. What about 1066 from Matilda's perspective? And then as a sort of contrast to that, uh, we have uh, Edward the Confessor's wife, and I'm actually, her name is completely sick. I think it's Edith. Uh, so she was also Howard's sister. So that's another female perspective on the Saxon side. So I had, in the end, eight different accounts, eight different characters from 1066 to talk about the year, from January right up until December. 
Uh, obviously, that includes uh, Hastings itself in October, where Howard doesn't survive. So we had to have characters to continue on that the kind of Saxon story right up until William was a uh, crank king, because he was cranking on Christmas Day in 1066 at... Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey, yeah. Um, good, good, story, good story from that. Um, so allegedly when uh, he's, in, he's in the Abbey, he's getting crowned, and the, uh, the Normans sing out, yeah, there's our new king, great. And then the Saxons are sort of encouraged to sing as well, so here there's a new king. But when the Norman guards post outside of the Abbey, hear the Saxon guys inside cheer. And let's be honest, they get, they get a maid to cheer. This is all a bit political. They're like, yeah, new king, yeah, this is great. Uh, they, they, they immediately panic because they don't understand what the Saxons are saying. They just hear shouting. They assume the Saxons have gone right and have killed everyone. So they set fire to the Abbey whilst William's in there getting crowned. Everyone else runs out. William's in there just getting a crown in his head like that with like flames all going around him. You just imagine the kind of like a symbolic way of what was going to happen over the next 30 years when the Normans led their true conquest of England. Um, so we had Twitter accounts sailing this entire story and it, it worked really well because it allowed us to, uh, allow the English heritage to just show different perspectives to 1066 because I think I was certainly very conscious that I didn't want it to be a kind of us versus them narrative. It's so easy when you hear when people talk about 1066 or anything of sort of court, they kind of get an us versus them type thing, um, which is, of course, ridiculous because it happened 1,950 years ago. There is no us. You know, that I'm English now. Okay, I am no way related to the English people from back then. I had nothing to do with it. Much the same as I had nothing to do with World War II. It's, you know, it's, it's very easy to fall into that mindset of us versus them. So I wanted to show the normal perspective as much as the English because, actually, I think William had a pretty good case to be king. If you if you believe what he said, that's what obviously a lot of it comes down to in the end. Well, how I said what William said, um, but yeah. So the uh, the Twitter campaign worked incredibly well for, for English heritage, and it, I, I got to say I worked alongside some fantastic people who made some great video content, um, blogs, website articles, you know everything. It was a massive, massive team effort, and notwithstanding the uh, the historians and the, <laughs> the curators who you know did, did their played their part, well. played their part, yeah. And it was it was a great it was a great enterprise and it was a really good example of how social media can can supplement other marketing methods to keep a story in the public's imagination because you know we had ten months worth of content to put out on Twitter and actually other than Edward dying in January and then the events the actual bust themselves in October there's not a lot going on between February and September time so I was putting out tweets every day from eight different accounts where am I getting this content from I can't just make stuff up you know how I decide oh I'm just going to go for a walk into London today blah blah. You know, we can't be saying stuff like that. We can't just... English Heritage, we're not in the business of fiction. Everything I tweeted had to be historically accurate. So I was referring to what primary sources I had at the time and, and quite a lot of great secondary sources just to really pull together some believable narrative for what they would have done in that time. And there's certain things we know that did happen. We know Matilda um, gifted uh, William a, a ship to lead the invasion. Uh, that was her gift to him. She was quite a wealthy person in her own right. Uh, we know that uh, you know, the, the Normans landed at Pevensey in sort of September time. Um, obviously, we know a bit about the, the Viking invasion at the Battle of the Bridge and stuff like that. So we can make a few things. There's a little bit of making up, maybe, but the narrative sort of worked with us. Um, fun fact from that year, in sort of May, Easter time, uh, you, you know what was spotted in England? Yeah. Comet? A comet. comet. Oh, you, you're really clear. I, I thought I'm going to get him on 1066. Mr. Roman boy over there is not going yeah. to... Um, yeah, I saw his comment in that year, and uh, it's, it's easy. Not, I read my horrible histories. So. Yeah, well, it's, it's on the Bay of Tapestry as well. You know, like the people pointing at the comet, and uh, 
it's obviously easy to look back now and say that, that was an omen. Um, was it at the time? What, what would people? How would people would have reacted to that? You know, would would the common man in England, uh, you know, perhaps a distant relative of your Roman farmer that you you talked <laughs> about earlier, um, would he have even known that there was this this crisis for the throne that this invasion army was coming over to England? Uh, maybe, maybe not. He probably would have been a bit perturbed by what he was seeing in the night sky. But uh, yeah, conscious that I'm going into a lot of detail about Dynasty Six now. Do you want to talk about Romans? <laughs> <laughs> well, my main kind of question was initially going to be, first of all, when you came to English heritage, and even also when you came to the history press before that, what was the situation like with their marketing, particularly in terms of social media? Was that something they were engaged with? Is that something that has picked up a lot of steam over recent years? Because obviously now it's perhaps, would you say it's the main way in which the vast majority of people access or, or see or interact with, with the information that's going out there? I mean, I guess there's probably to some extent a discrepancy, maybe in terms of things like age, for example. But apparently, like at Kent, prospective students, one of the major ways they've said in which they come across advertising for the University of Kent is via Facebook. Mm which I would not have been the case a few years ago. And I guess the one thing I noticed is that people are still very much, this is not going to be the same everywhere, but particularly I think still in universities, trying to get to grips with social media and how to actually utilise that. But would you say that when yeah, when you came to English Heritage and uh, the history press before that, was social media already a big part of the marketing plan or did that develop over time? I mean, definitely in the case of the history press, it was a new a new thing that they had just had the buy-in from the powers that be to go ahead with. I got that job at, at the History Press. It was a marketing job, a very general marketing job, and I didn't have a marketing qualification. It was my first job from uni. Uh, I got the job, I think, because I had the passion for history. I, I understood a lot of the subject matter, which is always easy in marketing if you actually give a damn about what you're selling in yourself. I think it's a lot easier. But mainly because... Uh, I was young and I knew social media as much as much as anyone else our age knew social media in 2010. Uh, and they, they, they only had a Facebook and Twitter page that they had created themselves at that point. And that there had been no real strategy. I think it's fair to say they, they just knew they had to have one. Is it kind of a case of like almost throwing darts at a board? It was almost, what yeah. I mean, I mean, there was so much buzz around social media in 2010 in terms of how organizations could use it. Um, before that I think the the bigger companies of the world were already looking into it in a kind of serious way and, and starting to explore it as, as a viable option for their marketing strategies but for a publishing house like the History Press which you know, it's not the biggest in the world it was a kind of a okay we don't really have the resources to bring someone in and pay them to do this full time and so a lot of organisations like that around 2010 were starting to go well you know, maybe that's something we should uh, we should invest in. You know, maybe we should have a think about finding those resources. So I, th- I think what's interesting to talk about as well is in, in 2010, and this will be relevant to you now, given that you just published your first book, uh, was that publishing at that time was in a very curious place. I mean, we're two years into the financial crisis. People didn't have as much disposable income. The high street was suffering a lot in this country, which sounds like I could be talking about today as well, but uh, bookshops... You buy HMV. Exactly. Well, I mean, HMV are part of this story as well because they owned Waterstones at the time and they were in big trouble back then, HMV, as indeed they are right now. 
and there was a big, big concern within the publishing industry that HMV were going to go under and take the Waterstones with them. And they were a huge part of certainly the history, the history press's start. You know, everything went out through uh, Waterstones and people were worried about Amazon because, okay, Amazon sells a lot of books. That's great, but they do it for such a, you know, they, they often don't make a profit on it because they can sell so much of it. People were concerned about ebooks, which again might sound like an odd thing to say, but people were thinking, what if ebooks can be so cheaper? What does that mean for us? And uh, actually, I think ebooks kind of plateaued a bit now. I think everyone that was going to go out and buy five ebooks a month, you know, the hardcore readers bought their Kindles years ago, and, and, and they're kind of, you know, they're not going to see a great rise in that. I think we've, we've already seen that rise. Uh, but again, easy with hindsight. In 2010, publishing was in a really precarious place, certainly in the UK. And people were starting to think, okay, how, how else do we reach, how else do we reach different people out there? You know, we, we, for a start, a lot of publishing houses could no longer afford to go down the conventional marketing routes of booking a venue and having a huge book launch, giving out a hundred copies of the books, trying to get some reviewers going. I mean, those things cost an awful lot of money and, and suddenly that money wasn't there anymore. So social media on the opposite side of things was, it was a free tool that could, in theory, reach millions and millions of people. So it was, uh, yeah, everybody wanted to do it. And I can see why History Press started doing it then. And I certainly bit their hand off at the opportunity because actually I wasn't too keen on marketing itself back then in terms of writing press releases and, and, and doing that kind of aspect of it, of it um, which, was a, which was still a big part of my job back then. But the social media digital side of things I thought was great, mainly because I got a chance to be quite creative uh, I got a chance to uh, commission video and, and graphics uh, and I got a chance to do a bit of creative writing. And that's really what I saw Twitter at the time was a chance to tell the stories that we were telling in the books. And actually, in a way, Twitter back then was different to Twitter now. And this one can get a bit nostalgic and there's some roast into glasses here, I know. But when oh, Twitter, when did you change? Well, when Twitter started, it was... It was more a place where people w would go to discuss new things and, and, and would be looking out for content and, and for new ideas. And there was a kind of sense of, I can, I can start any sort of conversation off here and it's not going to spiral into a PR disaster. Now Twitter is a place for, it's an echo chamber, isn't it? People go there just to get their opinions validated. They go there to argue as well, but that's just it to argue. No one's there to... I saw a study the other day as well that reckons that 60% of the internet now is just, like, bots. Yeah. Like, a lot, like less over half of the internet current traffic is being generated by machines. Yeah. Which I actually can see. Some of the times I see people online, this is going to go off a little tangent, but um, people online who seem to be arguing with accounts or they'll retweet an account and put some sort of sarcastic response to it. I'll look at it and I'll look at the account and just think, that's not a real person because mm. you look at the account and it was created quite recently. It's got like 10 followers. It's got like a, a weird picture avatar. Yeah, no, just burn the whole thing down and start again. There. See, there's a funny thing. A few years after I started working in that industry, there was a uh, people started to buy, buy followers and buy like people do that on Instagram. They, they, I, I mean, yeah, it's still, it's still really popular. And um, it, it kind of got, there, there was kind of this gray area of whether this is ethically, acceptable within marketing to just go out and buy 10,000 followers to get a new account going. I certainly never worked anywhere where that, that kind of budget ever existed anyway, so it never really came up as an option for me. But uh, I think now the idea is if you were, if you were found to have done that, you would be ridiculed for it. And again, and, and rightly so as well. 
but back in 2010, yeah, Twitter was a, it was much easier to get conversations going, healthy conversations going, I think. And working at the History Press, I, I kind of thought, well, you know, the great thing about history is, is there's always stuff to talk about. Um, there's anniversaries every day. There's always a on this day type of anniversary thing. And, and one of the first things I did there, and it was so simple, was just create a calendar of different things that happened on each day of the week, on each day of the year, and then find a book that History Press had that was relevant to that, which is actually, again, really easy. Like, for example, there's always World War II anniversaries every day, and working for History Publisher, a lot of World War II books. Uh, so doing stuff like that, you know, I, I found it was really easy to grow a community. But uh, I have to say, social media now, in a, on a professional capacity, it's very hard to grow channels organically now. And, and by that, I mean just putting out good content, letting people see it, share it, comment on it, and growing through word and mouth, that kind of way. It's what every marketer dreams of. But it's harder and harder because Facebook certainly have said, no, we don't want you to do that anymore. We want you to pay to promote your posts. And Facebook, I mean, this change happened over so many years and everyone saw it coming. And Facebook said they wanted to do it so that people stopped seeing irrelevant things in their news feeds. They say people were seeing things from like fake news sites or like content creators and this is Facebook saying well you know, you know what guys this is a place for friends to come together to comment about birthdays and stuff I mean, we just want you to have that experience again like it's 2006 so we're going to make it harder for those people to contact you on your on your newsfeed um, which is another way of saying oh we want people to pay to get onto your newsfeed uh, again it's great if you've got the budget for it but most most don't you know I, I, I think that's a sweeping statement see I think a lot of content publishers out there just really don't have that kind of money um sure any professional marketing team will have a budget for a paid facebook post to do it within a larger marketing strategy for, for for key key times of the year for example yeah sure but to do it for every single post impossible to do really for a lot of people and um, so when facebook made that change suddenly it, just creating good content wasn't enough and i think if i started my job now for an organization like the history press or any sort of publishing house like that i, I would find it incredibly hard just to get any any sort of growth on Facebook, certainly on Facebook. Um, Twitter is a somewhat similar story, but a, a bit different. Uh, it's, it's become a lot harder to do what I do in, in past eight years. And I guess that was always inevitable because for years it was a it was a free tool that that people made money out, businesses made money out of, you know. And Facebook said, actually, we want, we want some of that scratch. We want to get in on that. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot harder now to do it. Twitter in itself, I think, I don't know if you see this as a, Sort of personal user but i think it's quite a stagnated platform in the terms that te- technology wise they've not really been at the forefront of innovation for all of facebook's faults they created facebook live which is just so much better than periscope um they got the, their canvases they got this, this, there's just always new things going on, on facebook you can watch live sport on there now this, they've commissioned their own uh, entertainment like videos like series they're going to be up there with netflix one day well perhaps not but they're trying to be up there with netflix one day so facebook for their draconian terrifying oh my god they're taking over my digital life faults you know at least they do original stuff twitter hasn't really for the past few years and that's quite reflected i think like last year in the fourth quarter they made a profit for the first time in god knows how long um so in a way twitter's quite stagnated um even though it's still the number one place for breaking news but it's still a bit easier to i think to to, to grow on twitter than it is to facebook but both still very hard i think that's what's changed the most in the eight eight years or so that I've been doing it. Did you find over the time, say for example, the history press, you know, actively promoting stuff via social media, did that 
is it actually even able are you able to trace a positive impact on things like sales and the oh yeah absolutely i mean those kind of metrics are the, the backbone of any social media strategy and it actually it I think probably at the History Press, that was one of the easiest places I had to do that because it's quite easy to see whether social had an impact. Um, using analytics built into Twitter and Facebook, for example, it's quite easy to see how many people click a link you put out and you can track that through to your website using Google Analytics and just see thousands upon thousands upon thousands of different metrics that shows what people did when they got to the website, whether they bought a product and stuff. So, yeah, it was easily quantifiable. I think what's harder in social media is... Uh, is when you work for somewhere that hasn't got a that's not trying to sell something like often in, in the charity sector sector uh so i've worked for two charitable organizations and often your remit isn't always to sell something it's like raising awareness and, and how do you how do you qualify awareness that's a tough one to do hundreds of ways of doing it and you could people are qualified to comment on that single area of marketing people's sole jobs is to talk about that and to and, and to justify it but uh, sometimes it feels like a kind of a cop-out and professional point of view you think um, oh yeah yeah this campaign was great because it, it raised awareness and what do you mean by that it's like oh yeah it, it got 100 retweets you know it's what are those things mean we call them vanity metrics in marketing because what does 100 retweets mean what do 50 likes mean you've grown 200 followers this month okay so what you know you have to be able to back that up with other stuff as well um, but certainly the history press, it was easy to do because it was, you know, like we can see this action led to this book being sold or in, often the case this book not being sold. Um, but yeah, it just depends on what industry you're in, really. I think as well, you, a, a good tool for evaluating that as well is just seeing if you sort of search for keywords like history, for example. When I went to the history press, if you search for that on Twitter, you could see like the history press was like in the top 10 of the world for it. Um, and that was just based on the amount of content we were at the time putting out um, and that's a good way to see because I certainly I wanted people to see the History Press Twitter account not as a place where they were having books shoved in their face every day um, but rather a place where they could talk about history and learn interesting things about history and subliminally you want to buy the book yeah yeah and uh, <laughs> never 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 trust uh, somebody in marketing everything's about yeah. <laughs> they're, they're always trying to do but I, don't, I mean do you, do you mind that yourself as a consumer because if I see a good campaign Something that really catches my eye, I think it's clever, funny. I, I might go, I'm just going to buy that. Or no, I'm going to do that. Sometimes, I, sometimes it I does happen. I, I would look at it, I mean, from my perspective, obviously, if I see a campaign for a particular book, I might know the book is rubbish. <laughs> you know, mm. it, from a history perspective, um, yeah. as we had with last year with the, when we went to that talk by that author, the book about. Uh, religious destruction in the ancient world we won't go into that but that's but at the same time though i think there is an interesting or interesting questions to be asked about how in the academic world things are communicated because obviously that raises the question of like if somebody's selling something in as they were in that case where the idea their central idea is essentially from 100 years ago and it's not actually really engaging with modern scholarship but that's got a lot more traction why what we're obviously doing something wrong on the academic side in communicating what the most recent ideas actually are. So I think there's a lot to be said for marketing, and I think a lot can be learned in the academic world from marketing campaigns, from people like what you did with the History Press and was the English Heritage as well. Do you use Instagram that much when you're at English Heritage, or is that kind of still on the way up before you 
headed out the door. So English Heritage have a fantastic Instagram account, and I'm not saying that to big myself up because I had nothing to do with it when I was there. A colleague of mine created that from scratch and just, just did a phenomenal job. Um, and I, I think it grew like 50,000 people with, with like zero zero money behind it in like the first six months or something that it was out but yeah it that was a instagram is is the channel to to be on now for a lot of organizations i i would even i'm now following english heritage fantastic on i didn't do it before you, well you've left now so i i've i've I'm, i've long time left yeah but uh, you won't be disappointed they do a good job on there um but i would rate that as higher than facebook i think for a lot of organizations or instagram yeah instagram's the main one now isn't it is it because it's visual is visual that... um you know it's there's less place for like discussion per se compared to Facebook. I think a lot of people got been turned off by the kind of the heated conversations that you can have on Facebook. Because Facebook was funner when it was a place where you knew you know, it would just be people your own age talking about the kind of I remember when it, well, I remember when it was just university networks. Yeah, I think that's when I was, we, I think I was, we joined it. I, think. I, I would say this is crazy because we joined Facebook just as it hit these shores when it was still in just a university thing. Because when we started university, I should say for the record, we'd never met before. No. Uh, <laughs> so, he was not at my we, wedding. We had no previous experience of ever talking to each other. We'll get on to when we did a radio show later. But um, yeah, no, because we had MySpace when we got to uni. That was a big thing for about, I don't know, like four months. And then Facebook suddenly appeared and everybody started joining up to it. I can kind of get a rough idea of when Facebook... I must have joined Facebook because it's basically the friend anniversaries I have with people like you and other friends like Julian as well. And so I think I joined Facebook because it did come up recently that I've been friends. Actually, I became friends with our friend Julian on Facebook on your birthday. So I must have gone to Facebook around the first week of December in 2006, that would be. It's been there for like a third of your life. No, uh, <laughs> but it's weird to think back then that we had no concept whatsoever of what Facebook, Facebook no. would become. I think there's been a shift in terms of generations. It's, well, they're not really a different generation, I guess. Maybe they are, I don't know. But people that are coming through uni now, people that are kind of in their late teens, early 20s, don't put anywhere near as much on Facebook because we, we were much more kind of open about things. Yeah. And now we look back. But at the time, we had no kind of comprehension that it would become this worldwide thing. It was just literally, you couldn't even see it if you weren't in the university network. Yeah. And then it just went boom and then it was the, suddenly massive the thing with facebook now is that it's not it's an old person's platform it's it's for the the the, the, the only growth they I say the only growth is it's pretty big growth but the only growth they see there in the kind of 35 40 plus people perhaps even older in certain parts of the world you know you have your your baby boomers your soon to be pensioners using it the most and actually i think if you went on there right now and looked up I know a CNN or BBC article and look to the comments, you'd probably see the most vocal people that would fit that kind of age range. That's part of the reason why Instagram is so important now is because that's where the young, the youngsters, mm-hmm. the youth, that's where they've, they've, um, they've moved to. And uh, Interesting example, I think, recently was a couple of weeks ago with the whole thing with Raheem Sterling and the racist abuse, or supposed race abuse at Chelsea. I don't know if that's actually been what's going on with that, but that's a whole legal thing, so whatever. But, you know, the when he made that statement, he put it onto Instagram and the news outlets shared his Instagram post. I think that kind of says a lot that yeah. Instagram was the main one that he went to to... I mean, I don't know. He probably... I didn't really check up on it. I imagine he put stuff on, like, his Facebook page and his Twitter account and such, but it was the Instagram post was the main one that everyone was talking about which i think says a lot yeah i mean he's a young guy as well obviously and i 
I doubt, I mean, obviously he'll have a team doing all this stuff. Somebody as prolific as him, I would have thought. But the A-grade footballers, yeah, they prob- they're probably everywhere. You know, that they have their own brands they want to push out, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever. But I think the kind of, the less prolific stars, the younger ones, they're just going to be on Instagram and maybe Twitter because people their age don't really use Facebook anymore. Uh, I've, uh, I, have, I have a relative of mine, like a kind of second cousin. I'm not really sure how, how what, what I call my relation to him, but he's uh, uh, he's 18 and, and he's on Facebook. But whenever I've spoken to him about it, he said, yeah, I just kind of use it so my mum knows what I'm getting up to at uni, as, as much as I want her to know what I'm getting up to at uni, just that I'm still safe and stuff. But no enjoyment out of it. And like you say, like when, when we aired every thought we had on there and every filter from every night out, went up on there I think that's changed as well hasn't it when we went out you took a camera oh yeah and it's showing our age now but took a camera and every one of those filters would get onto Facebook the next day you'd wake up and go right I'm going to check out this picture now and there'd be albums and albums I think people tend to upload albums so much anymore on Facebook yeah. it's like the odd picture no, probably, probably more pictures because of camera phones but uh, again why spend the time on it when Instagram is made for, for filter sharing and, and, and that's why it's so important now well, that's what it says isn't it? an image says a thousand words but that's it I, I don't think you think on Twitter on Facebook. If I was going to post something on Twitter and I want to, I want attention. So if I'm posting something even about the podcast, I do it with an image. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't just post it as text because people glaze over text so much quicker well, than they do. Yeah, best practice. You you should never tweet anything without some sort of media asset in there. And everywhere I've worked, so I've Twitter guidelines one or one. Boom, image, video. Um, if you have to, just embed a link. Everything you do, yeah, like you say, people just glaze over it. Uh, it is good practice. Twitter, uh, again, young people, less of them on there now, um, tend to leave it. I think when mums and dads and grandparents and employers started joining these platforms years ago, the young people went, and not really for me, uh, which is expected, I think. Instagram it's standard, isn't it? Really, every, yeah. everything, everything's great Like when, it, when it's got a young audience and as soon as it becomes acceptable to... Well, not acceptable, but you know what I mean. Like Once basically the wider society is involved, then it's just diluted and it, people have lost their interest oh, yeah. in it. It's, it's like when like you're younger, if you were doing singing a cool song and your mum started singing, that was it. That song was no, no longer being sung because your mum was in it. It's the same principle now. And kids are on Instagram. They're on Snapchat. I think Snapchat's the interesting one because um, you can use it from a marketing point of view, even though it's, it's a private platform, even though it's exclusive to mobile. There's still ways you can you can do that. Obviously, Snapchat are a profit-making organization. They want organizations to approach them and pay for things. You can get those geo filters. Where if, you, if you're holding an event, you want your own filter for it. You can pay to do that. Um, but I think the reason the kids, the kids, again, show my age, I think the reason young people like that is because it is private. And they can kind of control what goes out and who mm. sees it a bit more than they can with anything else. And I find that the most curious thing that we've come full circle with uh, with digital communities. When we were really young in our sort of early mid-teens, MSN Messenger, uh, AOL Instant Messenger never really took off in this country, but bigger in the States, Yahoo Messenger. That, that was where people congregated to talk about stuff. Very private, quite isolated. You could pretty much be your own person and say your own thing. That kind of then took out a bit with the MySpace where suddenly people wanted to be seen and people wanted to show off their lives and talk about their awful music tastes and MySpace. Oh my God, you could just edit anything on HTML there. You could have like glitters and GIFs and horrible sound. You remember you used to open up some people's words and you just get like trivia and blasting out at you and stuff like that. Different days, man. I think I blew away too. Yeah. Um, but even like 
MSN Spaces as well. I mean, that's one no one ever talks about anymore. That was that was biggest. I remember that. I remember. Yeah. I, I remember a friend of mine putting up a bunch of photos. It must have been about fifteen or so, and then I remember it showing showing it to some of my other friends because he put up a bunch of pictures actually from a bunch of parties that we've been to and I showed it to my other friends they were like wow and little did I know that was actually the seed of Facebook there. and mm-hmm. that was essentially what Facebook yeah. become but I, I was not clever nor were many other people clever enough at this time to realise the, the, the potential of that LinkedIn it's been around since 2002 yeah. which surprises some people because it's probably the quietest one out of all of them uh, but you know we've come full circle because it, it got bigger and bigger and bigger we put more of our lives onto a public facing platform we, we basically sold ourselves for likes and followers and reach and then everyone mm, no not liking this everyone can see what i'm doing everyone can my mum can see what i'm doing and stuff i want to get more private so they move to the instagram and snapchat and even like whatsapp you can, i think you qualify whatsapp as a social media platform really within that kind of umbrella you know that's that's where they're going and will it go out again will people actually go no the next generation they, they want to be seen again mm. who knows who knows what the next development is in social media um, LinkedIn is certainly an interesting one. It's actually one of the few platforms that I like, still enjoy using in personal capacity. I think because it's professional and people new to what they're saying a bit. So you're not going to get the outrageous outlanders conversations you get on Facebook and Twitter there. Um, so, and it's just I've got a really, really enjoyable user interface, I'll say. You know, I, I do like my good UIs and LinkedIn. It's up there. It's probably something you see less of in your line of work. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one thing I was going to ask about was, well, I remember when you were at English Heritage, you were involved in the making of that animated video about Hadrian's Wall. Talk to me about how, how did that, something like that come into being? Did somebody just come out one day and was it involved in anything in particular that was going on? And is it something where somebody just says like, we should do this? How does, how does the whole thing come together? Because obviously you have to contact, I guess, somebody to do the animation and yeah, um, so we, when I when I went to English Heritage, we commissioned five animated videos like that uh, for, for social media, and that was the difference. The organisation had made their commissioned animated videos before to sit on YouTube and, and, and the website, but these were meant to be digested in, in 30 second to minute long segments because people don't watch video. People watch video on social. That's pretty much the only thing people really do on social right now is watch video, but they don't watch a lot of it. No. Pretty sure you can see, like, people, the first 10 seconds, a lot of people will just click out. So I've, have... I've, I've realised this, that a lot of people, and myself included, I, I do things like I end up watching, like, a five, ten minute thing on YouTube while I'm eating dinner or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing. Like, it's disposable, that I don't have to... I'm not engaging with something for half an hour to an hour. Mm. It's literally, like, ten minutes, and I don't have to pay entirely... Like entirely focus on what's going on. I can just kind of have it on there. Yeah, I think that is a general trend now that's becoming more of a. We just haven't got attention spans anymore. I, I think if you're ever making a video for Twitter or Facebook, put your key messages in the first ten seconds because chats so people are going to click out after that. But these videos for English Heritage, they're meant to be short. So it seems a little bit funny, but while still conveying the sort of key salient points. So whilst I was there, we uh, we did two ten sixty six. Yeah, those two videos and the Roman one you mentioned earlier, Hadrian's War. That was. Uh, that they had a theme to it of ingenuity. So the uh, English heritage was celebrating uh, human ingenuity in English history over the summer of 2017. Uh, so they looked at the creation of Hadrian's Wall. They looked at how to take a medieval castle, how to besiege one really interesting one. That one was fun. And they looked at Stonehenge, how Stonehenge was created. Um, so we basically worked with the same agency 
before. Yeah, that kind of work you have to outsource to a third party. You have to find someone who knows what they're doing to make good animated video. And I've got no problem with uh, with plugging Beakers, an organisation I worked with in London, Beakers, who made all of English Heritage videos when I worked there. They were just fantastic, a real joy to work with. Um, good yeah, to know. I, think, I was just going to say, the thing is, I suppose, with those kind of things, like an animation that lasts only a few minutes, I think people probably don't realise the craftsmanship that has to go into it, the effort that has to go into it, the, yeah, the I mean, complexity that has to go into it. And certainly with with the anim, the animation side, I think it's a kind of give and take where you want to be historically accurate, of course, working for an organisation like English Heritage, you, you have an obligation to be historically accurate. But the animators, when they get the brief to do this, might start taking liberties with how things look and how it's designed. And sometimes you kind of have to send something back and say... No, you need to change that. That's the wrong type of shield. To which the animators there going, it's just a shield, who cares? But you know, a lot of people will care if you put out the wrong type of Saxon shield, for example. Uh, so it is an awful lot of work, a lot of to and fro and And uh, I think the hardest part is just writing the script because you know what you'd like to say, but you've only got a minute to say it all. Uh, You're never going to please everyone. Well, yeah. And so the, uh, the kind of problem with the Hadrian's War one uh, was that we used the term barbarians, which is accurate i think you would say i teach a module called barbarians of the west so yeah, we, can, yeah. we can i mean i think we can we can live with the term barbarians yeah the, the barbarians north of hadrian's war uh, and i think some people find that upsetting because they thought there was modern scottish people were being called barbarians so, you're, which, so that's the misconception because like, hadrian's war is not near scotland well, well I mean, it's near scotland but it's not it's, and, and, and you know also the scots weren't, weren't even there then they were in ireland somewhere it was, it was the picks in mm. northern you know, not not at that particular point matters but uh but that was a good example because that, that script's been signed off by a lot of people internally. And everyone thought, yeah, barbarians is fine, it's historically accurate. It's, it's interesting then, because it's yeah. that connotation of the word barbarian and what it means. And it's the assumption of the negative connotations that have developed out of the ancient world. But it's, yeah, it's just it's just interesting. I mean, like one of the things uh, I'm, I didn't do it last year, but I'm going to do this year for Barbarians in the West is our first seminar. I'm going to do some word association. So I'm going to say to them words like barbarian, hun, goth, vandal, and then ask them what in, is it? In, in order, barbarian. So what, what, what would you be looking for for that barbarian? You might say uncouth. Uh, well, it's, hun, just, it's, German, just, it's interesting yeah. because if you, if you use those kind of words, like for example, vandal, the first thing that comes to mind is somebody wrecking something. Now, obviously that term's applied to the vandals who moved from Northern Europe all the way down to North Africa. But obviously, it's a, their society was a lot more complex than people simply going around breaking things. Um, no, they, graf- but they graffitied as well. Yeah, mm. certainly the Romans. But that's <laughs> the point. Like It's trying to get away from those, those uh, polarisations, particularly in late antiquity, because by the late antique period, the same people that you'd be talking about being barbarians were also being employed in the Roman army. And you have people like Stilicho who were in charge of the entire Roman army. And essentially, like, you know, Theodoric people that came after the Roman Empire were coming out of these groups called barbarians, but demonstrating themselves or appearing in very Roman-like ways. But no, it's just the the, the word barbarian and the, the other words associated with different barbarian groups have developed really strong negative connotations. Yeah, Probably. and I, I, in hindsight, I can see why that word went down the way it did. Uh, and it's a good example of how sometimes you you, you can't prepare for every eventuality and. I think that's the big part of marketing is, is crisis management is thinking, okay, we're putting out this campaign or making this content. What? How could this backfire on us? And you see it all the time. Never, 
marketing campaigns for big, for big companies backfire. You just think, well, why did you do that? And sometimes it can be easy to do for some cases. And so that script went through so many people who signed off. And it was we were thinking purely in terms of historical accuracy. I'd sign off. But, but you I, would. I, I but, 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 but with the academic hat on, you'd go barbarian. Yeah, that was a term used by the Romans. It meant distinctly somebody who wasn't Roman from the end of the frontiers and onwards. I mean, sure, why not use it? Um, so yeah, that 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 was an, an interesting, and it's interesting just that. because it, what it is is also how people are going on that basic presumption of Hadrian's Wall being a defensive barrier against the Scottish when it's not, as we were saying earlier, it's not, mm. and it's also that kind of the yeah, just what people think of Hadrian's Wall as well, and the connotations they have because obviously, as you say, the video itself had to be quite a short one, so it's digestible and people watching, are, you know then they leave it and they go away. But, you know, people write entire massive volumes on Hadrian's Wall, so it's, you know, it's going to be a much more complex subject than that. It's like when I write, or when I mark an essay sometimes, you have to give students a little bit of leeway because, you know, a student can't say everything in an essay. If a student knows what they're talking about and they they make some really good points and they put a fair bit of information into their essay, well, you know, in 2,500 words, they're not going to cover everything and you've got to accept that. Uh, in fact, actually, I've had a couple of students who have just written essays on Hadrian's Wall who haven't covered everything, but they got good marks because they covered the main point. It's 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 that kind of understanding as well, I think, that you can't... You're not going to cover everything in a short video, which people don't really appreciate. Mm. Take me back, though. I mean, usually one of the things I ask people as well is how you first got interested in the the world. I mean... Well, ancient history because you did study ancient history. Do you do ancient history and history? Ancient or? history and history, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, as you're saying, you know, you've ended up going down a career path where you kind of dipped in and out of um, companies that are involved in history, and that stems to some degree. Well, largely, I guess, from your own degree, which was say was in history and ancient history. Um, it certainly makes it easier to get jobs in the heritage industry when you've got history degree yeah but you know it's always right nice as opposed come. to i mean like but as opposed to like you didn't do a degree actually in marketing no 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 but for, i mean just to go back to the very start like how did you how did you first end up doing a degree in ancient history history why why choose that i think i got into ancient history oh i mean we could go back with this story but i think probably like you one of my first loves as a kid one of the first interests i remember having was dinosaurs right so this this goes back this goes way back 65 million years this anecdote uh, you know, through through like Jurassic Park and stuff as a kid, and I could list names as a five year old that you know, Stegosaurus, Dromaeosaurus, Diplodocus, Stephanosaurus, you know, names that. I've just had a sudden thought that I think what I'm going to start doing is repeatedly talking on the podcast about having a really big interest in dinosaurs at a young age and switching to archaeology, but basically claiming the reason I do what I do is because of Jeff Goldblum, the star campaign to get him on the podcast. That's just a side thought I've just had. Yeah, Carry on, life. Uh, finds a way <laughs> yeah, it does uh, <laughs> but I think that that got me interested in the past in, in kind of general and then at school that was sort of taken to the, the human realm when I looked at Greek myths in like year four so we did Heracles and you know the 12 labours of Heracles and I just thought wow that you know, I mean Greek myths themselves are great for kids to get into you know just story from story from story it's the ancient superheroes really and I always maintained an interest in ancient Greece from that and then I started reading the whole history books that you referenced earlier. My first one, Cutthroat Celts. Well, what was a Celt? Now I knew, I think I knew more than my parents did about Celts. And then the uh, 
Rotten Romans, yeah. Groovy Greeks. Making a film of Rotten Romans now. Oh my god. It's gonna have Derek Jacobi as Claudius again. I had um I had the the combo pack of Groovy Greeks and Rotten Romans like like in one book and it had a had like a kind of a platonic kind of Greek figure saying to a, a Roman legionary, What are you doing in Greece? And he goes, I'm just roaming around. All I remember from that book, that one bit. But yeah. I love those books and that that kept a healthy interest in the ancient world throughout my time at school because I mean I certainly never really touched upon that in history at school probably did the Romans at some point like in, like in primary school but um, definitely did the Saxons did a lot on the Saxons uh, but when I knew I went to go to university I thought well I did ancient history because I thought well yeah, that's what I've always been interested in the Greeks the Romans and that's why I chose I think I, I chose in all fairness I was thinking about this earlier just on a very on a quick side note we had a pretty tough time when we graduated because we graduated like right in the middle of the recession as well, which was not the best. Well, I don't know. It was hard, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I, I mean, they were like, for me, like, there, was, there was literally like no jobs in archaeology. Like, yeah. People were being made redundant, they weren't hiring, they were sacking people. Yeah, yeah. graduate employment was tough, and I think a lot of people wanted pe- people with experience in new roles rather than degrees because it was a hard time and they didn't want to train someone. And yeah, no, it was tough for us, and uh, didn't help the fact that we had the tuition fees as well. We were the first generation to have the higher tuition fees which now seem like nothing compared to what tuition fees later became. But, um, yeah, I didn't really give a lot of thought about what I wanted to do with, with a career. Did you always think you'd go academic? Like, do you think, did you always know I'd go? No, I, I actually, I was, I, was saying, I was thinking about this earlier. I mean, no, I always wanted to be an archaeologist. I was of the mindset that I was just going to graduate and probably end up just go working for a commercial unit. But, as I say, in 2009 when we graduated... There were no archaeology jobs. People were people were being made redundant because archaeology, commercial archaeology, is so tied to the building industry. Then in a recession, it just completely flatlines, and it was only being in that situation. I mean, finishing uni, going on a couple of digs. Like when I went to Cyprus for a few months, and coming back at the end of the year, and there clearly not being any work, and just deciding, well, I might as well go do a masters, and going and doing that, and that was. There was only really the masters where I actually started to think to myself, the academic path might be one for me. Um, obviously, you know, I've since gone back into commercial and dipped in and out of it. But yeah, it wasn't until actually I did the masters that I really started to think I'd actually become you know, an academic uh, rather than just simply like a field archaeologist. Mm. See, I had no idea at all. I just thought university, yeah, that's what everyone's telling me to do at school. Go to university, go, it'll be great. You'll walk out and your first day you'll get a 30 grand job within like two weeks of graduating and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, it's very easy to say that in hindsight, isn't it? But I knew I wanted to do agent history and, and I did the history side of things as well. And, and that Redden history is defined as, I think, from late antiquity up until like the modern era. So that, that whole massive period in ancient, everything before that. And I did a range of stuff at, at Redden for, for that kind of history side of things. I think I... The most modern thing I did was the civil rights movement in the States in the 60s. Right. Um, but then I did things as varied as uh, uh, the rise of Islam in the 7th century and uh, Columbus discovering the Americas and, and all sorts of stuff. And that was great. Actually, my favourite part of that was medieval. That's when I realised I, I really enjoyed medieval history, probably as much as I, as I enjoy ancient history. So I did a lot on the Crusades. When you realise that the popes in like, high medieval Europe were politicians. You're John Julius Norwich books on the Popes. It's good read. It's good read. He did, he did a book on the entire history. Oh, of I think I might have done. I but might... it's like an easily digestible. It's like there's like a chapter for each Pope. Or Essentially, yeah. Like, I yeah. mean, I think he, I did he, he runs through them quite quickly. Yeah. But it's uh, yeah, it was a good read. Um, yeah, and that and that like, whole 
thing got me interested in like the relationship between the the Roman Emperor and the Pope and the kind of conflicts around that. And, um, but yeah, no, Crusades. That's 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 an interesting stuff. Like it's one of those things that people I think have just got the wrong. Like popular culture has got that wrong. I think Crusades probably not helped by various Victorian writers who used it as a way to talk about their own kind of conflicts with the East and um using that in speech marks in in, in their time. Um, but I mean, what what would you say is the Primarily, the cause for the First Crusade. Why do you think the Crusades were were, were called? Money, probably. I so you, you're not you're not taking my my uh, my QI kind of in there, which is oh, I was to get Jerusalem back or something to that. No, effect. clearly, so, clear, yeah. clearly, it's a more complex situation than that. I'd also probably say there's probably something to do with someone's legitimacy thrown in there as well. It's uh, it's actually a, it's much more related to the the, the Byzantines and the trying to. Uh, heal this the, the, that kind of schism. The schism, that's it. I was say schism. The schism between uh, Orthodox and Catholic. So at the time, uh, it's Pope Urban the Second who proclaims what we now know as the First Crusade in 1095 in uh, Clermont in the south of France, I think. And there are about four different primary sources detailing what he said at the time. And the, like, the first was written out a few years after. The, the latest, from like a hundred years after. The earliest ones very clearly state that the, uh, he wants to call an army together from, from Europe, from Western Europe, to go and aid the Greeks uh, to fight against the Seljuk Turks. So the Turks were then invading their territory from Central Asia. Nothing really in there about going to Jerusalem and, and, and taking it back for, for, for Christians. But later speeches kind of negate all that and they just sort of say oh yeah it's you know i want you to go and get jerusalem for me and it's quite interesting because we know from history what actually happened was the, the crusade made his way to constantinople they picked up troops there they have a bit of a few fallings out with the greeks the greeks eventually turn back and leave them and then they decide whilst they're there to go and claim areas for themselves and there's a lot of second born sons there who aren't going to inherit land back home so take upon themselves to become king of jerusalem and king of cyprus and and stuff like that so it kind of got hijacked by people on route perhaps inevitably but I find that quite interesting, that the Crusade started as this more kind of way to heal the gap between Greek and Catholic. Do you think that's interesting? Yeah, But obviously later on, when it was proven that, hey, you can go over there and, and reclaim land, and pretty much the, like, the second and third Crusade were about that, and they were pretty disastrous, actually, from a, you know, a kind of Western perspective. I think it was only the first one that could be deemed a success from that. Um, Obviously, the Third Crusade captures our imagination because of uh, Richard Third. Is Richard Third, isn't it? First. first. Yeah, I know my history really well. Yeah, uh, Richard the Third. He went over there after the. Yeah, yeah. You, you actually know he survived Bosworth and went to Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a twist for you. Yeah, I love those stories from history where they're like, "Oh yeah, this this person survived that," and then he that, go back to 1066. There's one from Harold where he survived, and he like spends the rest of his life as a hermit and like. Germany and something because of course you would if you were well, it's interesting with those kind of stories because sometimes that suggests that somebody's got a level of popularity I mean obviously Harold probably would do but a level of popularity that carries on because it's well because sometimes those sort of things you get like imposters that pop up or claimants mm-hmm. to the throne but, yeah um, it's like Nero after he dies there's like a fake Nero that turns up which despite the fact that everyone thinks that Nero's a really bad emperor, suggests that actually he's got a level of popularity with people, uh, because otherwise there'd be no point in being an imposter. 
Oh yeah, of course that was the coffee man. Yeah, well, wasn't it? That was uh, the yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when he couldn't, when he couldn't get his imperial throne back, he set up a coffee chain, which carries on till this day. Um, I was going to say, is there anybody that inspired you massively when you were reading? But we'll just say me and leave it at that. No, I was definitely Ross. I got to do a shout out for Ross in this. Just like the man, the legend, the myth, as one day he will be. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just call all my kids Ross. My first one. <laughs> That's where I was too. Uh, people somebody actually said to me recently uh, about doing this podcast they were like oh that's great like you're actually taking the experience you had when you did things like the student radio and and using it in your current current profession and I was like I don't draw at all on my time in student radio the student radio thing was just a, a bit of a we presented a student radio show for three years or two and a half years because we stopped doing it towards the end because it was just like couldn't be bothered anyway. well I wasn't so just couldn't be bothered but getting into the final final straight of uni one of my lasting memories of that is but I remember doing the radio show one morning this was when we had to do I think it was like the nine o'clock slot on a Monday and nobody else wanted to come in because we'd been on a bar crawl the night before and I still got up the next day and did it and I was very tired very hungover but I had a voucher for Cafe Mondial one of the cafes on campus so I went there to get a drink and I didn't really know anything about coffee so I was just looked at the menu and I was like, oh, I don't know, I'll have an espresso, whatever that is. And she was like, okay, sit down, I'll bring it over to you. She went over and put it down in front of me. And I was like, what the hell is this? Shut so, yeah, well, I just did it in one go rather than sipping it. And then about an hour later, I was like, who wants to go out again tonight? Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. I remember being naive was... about, I was naive about coffee. Because I, I didn't like, I, I don't know if it's different now for kids, but I just grew up with tea and coffee was something my dad had every now and then. I didn't drink coffee until I went to uni, I don't think. Well, I, so. I didn't really start drinking like coffee until I was like in my mid-20s. Now and, I'm two cups a day. Yeah. Well, it's also like now I know what I like as well. It's like, mm-hmm. I will go and have a soy latte and I, I and that is my preference. Soy latte, that's, that's usually what I yeah. have. Or like a flat white or something. But back then, like, I, I probably didn't even buy a single coffee at uni for that exact reason. I was probably a bit intimidated by it. Mm. Just go in there going, oh yeah, yeah, I want to... Uh, I wanted tea, and tea is always the worst thing to buy from a cafe because always, it's always really bad tea, and you pay two quid just to get a little bit of hot water and a little. Uh, at least with the coffee, there's some kind of magical science there that makes it wonderful. But a tea, so that's probably my experience of cafe Monday at uni. Is I would like an overpriced tea, please. And I went to the shop and bought a copy of the Guardian because it was forty p. Didn't even read it really because it was too big and too much there. But I just wanted to like you know I'm young. I'm liberal and I'm educated and I'm going to sit here and impress people. That was my mentality. And man, I was such a douchebag. So I, talked to, I was talking to people recently at, at, um, at a conference about that. And I was surprised how many people did the same thing. I was like, yeah, I used to buy, I used to buy papers like that just so I could appear to be smart at like the Times and the Guardian and stuff. And did you ever read it? No, not really. Probably tried the crossword and then just put it down on the table. And... Dragging it back... Um... Would you, if somebody at uni now was thinking about one day that they would like to get into social media marketing, would you have any kind of advice about that? About I, I, I actually, funny enough, I because um... I just on a quick tangent, I actually, yeah, this was another question I meant to ask as well because one of the recent assignments I set for own Britain students was based on your ten sixty six advertising campaign, so I asked them to do an event for Romano British history like Boudicca's Revolt. Um, Caesar's expeditions, Claudius's invasion, and tweet about it from the perspective of, of a certain character. Bearing that in mind, in terms of, of I suppose, like gaining any sort of experience in that. I mean, did you did 
Do you think that, looking back on it, the university should do more in terms of engaging with those kind of things and giving more ch- people chance to engage in transferable skills? Because I had to do it actually as part of a project for my PGCHE, and I've asked students to give me feedback on it. I haven't really read them all yet. But some of the stuff that I have read that some of them have put is one of the things they, that a repeated comment that came up was it was a break from doing essays. And it was something somebody actually did put, I don't see myself going into a career in this field, but they were like, this is an interesting exercise to do because it's something that can translate over. Do you think that's something that universities and more generally, you know, I guess education should engage with a bit more? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think it's hard, though, the sheer number of students people have, especially for things like history and archaeology, which are always popular. And I mean, I don't know if you did this when we were at Reading, but I, I did have a module about like workplace skills it may have been on my, mm. on my history side of things but I mean like in terms of that was like I'm doing you know I'm teaching them a module on Rome Britain but this was just an assignment it was an assignment it didn't contribute an awful lot to their mark and you can say like with something like Twitter I was also able to say you can only use X number of words per tweet mm. and it only adds up to like 500 words so I guess I, it'd just, be... I just mean like doing those kind of like exercises and things yeah, like that yeah I guess it'd be useful for the degrees that are, are less a less obvious way you can go with them because like the you're doing law, you can go into various well-paid careers, engineering, science. Like it's more obvious what you can go into. But I think that the BAs, it basically is the BAs, isn't it? It's uh, the histories, the uh, the arts, the Englishes. You know, the, you know that's a, that's that's how terrible the Englishes uh, of the world. Yeah, maybe they should like have a, a small component where it actually says, look, these are the skills you're you're picking up from this that can be used for X, Y, Z. Um, I think on the whole, though, you can't. My advice to somebody now who, who was interested in going into social media and marketing, A, I would say just approach marketing as a whole rather than just social media to start with. That's actually what I did. My first role was a very general marketing role and I got to try a little bit of everything and I was able to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like. And from that, I realised I was quite good at the social media side of things. Made a campaign that won an award, then went on and, and, and have since specialised in that area. But for anyone interested in that, there's there's many, many other things in marketing that people can try out. I've worked with a lot of publicists over the years, people that deal with the press and the media. That's a very intense job, but I think really exciting as well. You get to work with some big names and you get to meet some fantastic journalists. Um, so, yeah, really, I think when you're that young, you shouldn't pigeonhole yourself too much. Um, but obviously, it's always good to get experience in trying different things. So make your own blog, do your own podcast. Uh, if you can become an, an Instagrammer, that's an influencer. So you don't have to do anything. What I've just said, you could just sit back every day and uh, <laughs> make money doing advertisements. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it, I don't know. it's on the other hand as well. I think actually for a lot of these degrees, which are less obvious in terms of a career progression, actually there's a lot you can do, an awful lot you can do. And as soon as you nail down what those skills are that you've learned, because in, in history and ancient history and, and you know much the same as archaeology as well it's uh, the writing skills you know you, you can write a lot you can write quickly you can write with an opinion uh, you're going to have good research skills it's very telling once that I went I, I lived with as you know some physicists when I was at uni and one day they had an essay to write and they were absolutely flabbergasted about writing the essay it was 500 words was like, that's an intro for, for mm. all of us you know and that's not too blase. It sounds like it. the beginning of like a sketch in the young ones or something. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and that's not to the fact that these people were very smart doing a very complicated degree that I would probably know nothing about. But, yeah. but it's that yeah. horses for courses idea. And it's that idea, I think, as well, when people talk about 
the humanities being quote unquote a lesser subject in comparison to other things actually we'll know there are important skills that you develop in the humanities and it's understanding i think sometimes that's the thing it's understanding or promoting more what those actually are and that it's not just simply because one of the problems we have in archaeology i think still is that there is a general presumption that it is um a bunch of old guys drinking ale who go and stand in muddy fields and never find anything. Which is rubbish, because you're cider drinkers. Well, yeah. Gin. I, 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 um, I'm cider drinking red wine of an evening now. But um, one of my students actually sent me a sketch the other day, a YouTube um, clip from YouTube of Armstrong and Miller. And um, one of the guys, he's walking through a field, and it's like it's a rib on time team where he's talking about like we've been here for days looking for this blah 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 blah. It's really interesting blah blah blah. And he gets to the edge of the trench and there's a guy sat in the trench who's clearly kind of a little bit based on Mick Aston, uh, who's from Time Team, but he's got like long like middle aged guy with long hair, kind of zany jumper. And he's like, so what have you found? And he's like, I've discovered that archaeology is boring. <laughs> and and it's more often than not actually even talking to to people now like people still have that kind of idea of what it is and trying to i think this is one of the things particularly i'm actually trying to do with the podcast is actually demonstrate that there's more to it than just that and there's more to studying the ancient world and studying archaeology and classics etc than perhaps what people think uh, oh, yeah. there is absolutely and the but Anyone studying it now will forever get asked by parents, friends, co-workers, you know, if, if they're doing part-time jobs, what are you going to do with that? You probably had that. I had that all the time. And uh, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's quite a rude thing to say to someone, actually. I think who's, who's spending all that money, all that effort to study something, just to be told what you're going to do with that in a kind of snobbish way. And yeah, there, there is still this, this huge sweep in generalizations that these degrees are worthless, which you know, they're absolutely not. I think every, Pretty much everyone I've ever worked with in, in the marketing sphere have had degrees. One or two have had them in marketing or business-related fields. The rest came from other other associations, other other, other studies, and uh, I, I find that quite telling. And I just think marketing as a whole is, is something that's... If you've got those, those key skills from a degree, you can pretty much get into any part of marketing that you want. Mm. And it is an exciting career. You, know, you get to be creative, and, and that's... a apart most people don't think about you, to do well in marketing you have to be creative you have to think outside of the box and you have to be willing to take risks and if, and if you're somebody who enjoys doing that then yeah it's a it's a good career i mean i've had the chance to uh and this seems like a dirty word at the moment but film with drones you know like do spectacular uh panoramic videos with with, with drones of, of castles and other beautiful historic sites you know i've got to write scripts for for videos um, i've met an awful lot of Celebrities, if I if I had to name drop a few, I would not go into. But um, you can say Harry Redknapp. I met Harry Redknapp. He I interviewed him. He was good. Um, Judy Dench, lovely. Um, Darcy Bussell, one of the nicest people I've met. I have no idea those. Darcy Bussell's a very famous ballerina. She um, yeah. she does I like, think Strictly doesn't come dancing now, but she was um, in her own way as, as a ballet dancer in the in the nineties, um, and, and she was great because she was like so humble and, and shy and nervous about talking she had to do it like a, a speech in, on, 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 a, <laughs> on a street corner like a public street corner in London she had to do a speech that we were recording and she said I'm just so nervous and I'm like wow you've danced in front of thousands of people you're on TV and you're nervous about this but I suppose it's different when you're in a public face with like Joe Polich walking past you in front you know she was great um, Brian May you meet Ian McKellen as well 
Um, yeah, very briefly. Yeah, and David Attenborough this year. Oh wow! Really? Two, yeah, yeah. And, and, Did you actually get sweet David Attenborough? I, I very quickly uh, said something to him. Um, I don't think he had a clue who I was or why I was working there because I didn't introduce myself. I was too nervous. But thankfully, as nice and as wonderful as you would hope. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I was. I would, I would imagine that would always be my fear with those sort of things. I actually was in a. I got on the underground the other day in North London, and then there was an announcement saying the train wasn't going to go anywhere. It was, the train ahead of it has broken down. So I got off the train and it was one of those stations where there's no um, escalator. You have to get the lift back up. So I was wandering around and I eventually wandered back into the lift. And as I, well, as I was standing there waiting for the lift to come down, this bloke standing next to me, I look at him and I think, you're Jonathan Creek. Or is Alan Davis. And, and we got, he like, I looked at him and he looked at me and then I sort of just looked away and then I didn't say anything to him because I was like, he's already like behind because his train is not going anywhere and there's always that risk when you talk to people like that that they're going to have that one bad day yeah. they might be lovely like 99% of the time but like I don't know something really bad's happened to them that day or whatever and then you always have that risk that you're going to talk to them and they're going to be awful because they've something bad's happened or you know whatever and uh, you've that, taken them out of context and, yeah. and, and they'll colour like, your opinion of them forever yeah exactly I, I'm a strong believer of that. don't be heroes although I imagine like David Attenborough is one of those guys you've got to be pretty safe with do you know what he spoke I, as as a kind of auditor spoke so well and that's when you realise damn as a skill that that's been lost the ability to stand in front of people and enunciate speak loudly speak clearly hold an audience I mean I suppose he's had decades of experience with it but wow that was a you know, seeing that in person was incredible but yeah no, he's one of those people that's got well he's got like a level of gravity to him hasn't he where you just when he speaks, an entire room is always going to fall silent. Wait, because everyone's just annoyed. You wouldn't even listen to what he probably says half the time. You'd probably just be sat there just like... Oh. It's like a lullaby. It's like, just put yeah. me to sleep in a good way. Um, but yeah, when he speaks, the world listens. Like, that's why we're gathering up our plastic now and become much more conscious about that. And that was a, that's a great story from 2018, don't you think? And that's one good thing we can take as a as the human race from the year is that people start to wake up to plastic a bit more. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for this documentary. It's a bit late though. Oh, God, I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to stay optimistic about the future, but uh, we've, we've, oh, I, I'm conscious we've gone through all of this and we've not once brought up Star Wars, I feel. Well, when you were talking about drones, I was going to say make some sort of joke about a drone army, but... A drone army, yeah. yeah. I probably They're not very effective, that. clearly, so you don't have to worry too much about drones. I actually thought earlier, link, linking up the Star Wars and the history, because that's what this podcast is about, I'm sure. Um, I, I played Star Wars The Old Republic a few years back. I remember that. It was an MMORPG. Um, the kind of spiritual successor to Knights of the Old Republic, the older, very acclaimed uh, game from like 2002. And uh, you have four characters on the Republic and four from the, the Empire, the old Sith Empire. And I, I made it to uh, to call them, the, the Republic characters I called Athenian, ancient Athenians, and the Empire ones, ancient Spartans. And I just remembered that earlier when I was thinking of uh, Themistocles, who uh, created the Athenian Navy and... Uh, led the the Greeks to victory at Battle Salamis. And I thought, wow, how telling is that that I that I called the good guys the Athenians and the bad guys the Spartans. It's like somehow that um history read, that's been written by the Athenians has just clouded my judgment of the Spartans. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gonna lie, I mean there's probably been some very nerdy things said on this podcast, but that's definitely gonna rank amongst the most nerdiest I've ever ever heard. Given you've had some very like, you know, smart academics on there, I'm gonna take that as a compliment. Oh no, it is. Massive this, massive nerdy thing, yeah. This this podcast constantly spirals off into nerdiness, so I'm fine with that. But I was thinking of uh Themistocles because I was you know that awful prequel to three hundred that was made. I've never actually seen it. I, I think I drifted in and out of it, so I watched them and, uh, you know, terrible. 
Um, but it's got like, the Battle of Salamis, which, which like I'm I have very fond memories of that battle because I was there. It was a good time, you know. <laughs> it was a, you know, rolling the uh, the army soldiers up there. But it's from our first year at uni. I think it was one of the first pieces of work we got uh, told to do in, in our fifth century Athens module to study the uh, the play called The Persians. I forgot who wrote it now. Fifth century play. Aeschylus. Euripides. Not Euripides, but um, it's a tragedy, isn't it? It's Aeschylus. To the internet. You can carry on talking. But because um, there's the great moment from it where Xerxes is standing on a cliff edge and he's watching the battle underneath him, just like watching his his fleet get decimated by the Greeks, realizing that that's basically it. That's yeah, it was by Aeschylus. Boom. Oh, well, I, I'm the, I'm the only one. Who, you know, I did focus on ancient Greece in my in my degrees. So what do I know? Um, we did. Uh, we did Jews and Christians in the ancient world together, and well, I did a few we Roman did, like, We did. We did Roman Empire. End Augustan of Rome. end of the Roman Empire as well. I remember that? Yeah, that was good. That was my. That, I think that was my best mark at undergraduate. Rather telling. I didn't realise it then, but that was going to kind of. Uh, I, I I did well in the coursework for that, but then I think I really botched up my exam because it was something like uh, I can't remember what I did for the coursework, but the exam question I remember doing about Constantinople I think I actually I actually think I chose Constantinople as an exam question as well whatever the question was just because I thought nobody else is going to do this so it would be different I did in the exam something like did did Rome actually fall in 476 which is like such a loaded question and probably too much to answer in an hour and a half or oh, well, like, well, most exam questions I don't, I don't. None, none of the modules I teach have exams Oh no, one does actually now, one of the first few ones does. But by and large, exams are very difficult to assess people for things like ancient history because, you know, the idea is like it's critical analysis and it builds on use of things like secondary sources, but you can't really do that in an exam. You just kind of just throw all your kind of... God knows I tried, which is why I still remember like books now, like Paul Cartridge did that. That book, was it... Greece is like uh, 5th century Athens you did a book. oh yeah there was, like there was the cartilage book and I swear there was another one as well there was like two books that we had as our kind of core reading for well most of the undergraduate when it came to the Greek stuff but I, I tell you who I like, who yeah. I always enjoyed reading was Robin Waterfield I think I think we had his translation of Herodotus when we when we started um, but he wrote a book that inspired me to do my dissertation on the subject that I did it on he did a book on the March of 10,000 um, which I knew nothing about until I read it. I thought, like, this is brilliant. It's a really interesting part. That's when I did my dissertation on Greek mercenaries. It's based on that. It's one book. And it completely inspired me to do that. I'm pretty sure he did Herodotus histories. We've still got somewhere. I've read that, like, cover to cover, at least twice. You know, I've got a soft spot for Herodotus. Father of lies, as some, as some call him. Mm. Yeah. Always be the father of uh, Greek history in my heart. But you, you were always more of a Thucydides man, weren't you? Because you did your... This, this is what I remember. I remember in our first year at uni, I did a course of on the Persian Wars. Could we actually do something from 5th century Athens and you did the Peloponnesian Wars? I cannot remember. See, it's fair, I, I remember that. Cause I, was like, I, can't, I actually am slightly worried about how little of my undergraduate I remember. As in, like, I barely remember any of my first year seminars, lectures. I'm really good at attendance. I just don't, for we, some reason. We came like, up with our radio show name, or you came up with our radio show name, in a 5th century Greece lecture. I remember that. I remember like being sat there and being, what the hell is this weird guy from London on about? I like, didn't even know you back there. And you're like, so yeah, you know how there's panic at the disco? Why don't you panic at the radio? And I was like, okay, good, good. Paying three grand a year for this, this guy. And look where we are now, eh? Uh, but, uh, I think we're probably better move to wrapping this up. But um, one quick question before we end. Um, 
Man United are going to finish in the top four now? I want to say yes, because we've had three great games. Okay, Against fairly lacklustre opposition. Yeah, but, you know, you can only play what's in front of you, Dave. You can only play what's in front of you. You're not getting a clean um, sheet as well. Well, do you need to do that when you're banning goals? I don't think so. But he's got the same problem as Mourinho did, where he's got, he hasn't got the best centre-backs to play with. But at least he's scoring goals from it. I don't know. Possibly. I mean, if you guys keep playing like you did against the weekend, you know, you're going <laughs> to just spiral out of where you are. Spurs, no, we'll come back again. You, 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 we got you in like two games. See, that that would be our test for us. If we can get something out of that match, and that would be, you know, that would be telling whether that top four is possible. But I mean, I, I don't think Arsenal particularly as solid as everybody makes them out to believe. And actually, like... Chelsea are a bit flaky as well. Chelsea are flaky. And actually, I had them down to win the league at the start of the season. I just thought they would do it, but... Well, your fantasy league team is crash and burned. I beat you this weekend. Well, quite good, you know, quite well. And actually, if I'd uh, had a bit more luck with, uh, oh god, it's getting close it? now. Uh, the six of us in the league, I think there's only probably about twenty odd points separating. Uh, oh, apart from Pete, who's top, who's just blazing ahead of everyone. But he's just doing it on luck. But do you think you'll finish in the top four? Yeah. Okay. I want to go on record. Yeah, you can, uh, you can get it on, capture it on a on a microphone. Yeah, we'll That's get top record. four. Okay. I think... Uh, you think I finished off Spurs? Oh, do you know what I think we could do? I think you might bottle it again. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> All right. I think that's a, that's a good point to end on. And I'll play this back at the end of the season when we do finish above you. Okay. you finish the top four. Oh, okay, I'm sure. Before we cut off, did you enjoy your Secret Santa present? I did see what it was before. Oh, my FIFA trophy. Your FIFA trophy. Yeah. I did. Yeah. And I did send our, our friend, dear friend Julian a picture of it. Was he it. impressed? Uh, he asked whether or not James, who bought me the trophy, is blind. <laughs> um, which is clearly not, because I won more games this year. So I am currently reigning FIFA champion. Okay, well, we'll send this to Julian after as well, so you can hear that. Thank you very much. Cheers. for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.